By the end of this, Rashomon is not going to sound like a word. No. The the rush rush <laughs> effect. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Pete Romberg, and I got nothing special going on this week. It's been a nice, relaxing weekend for me, and I'm going to uh, kick this over to my other co-host, who has more exciting news, assuming she wants to share it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my name is Martha Sullivan. I am a librarian, and newly elevated to managerial status so big uh big changes coming up for me career-wise yeah um yeah i (laughs) that's uh i i only got my i was telling pete off air i only got my i only got the news about this like two days ago so it's still extremely fresh Mm -hmm. uh still kind of processing that but yeah, yeah. About to about to move on to the next next steps in my uh, career oriented life. <laughs> and you'll have to update your introduction for yourself on these podcasts. I know it's very weird. I feel like when you are, um, I feel like in the world of librarianship, the kind of librarian you are is a pretty like big defining factor. Mm-hmm of just kind of who you are and yeah i won't be able to say that i'm a ya librarian anymore yeah and like that has always been your your wheelhouse it it still is my wheelhouse (laughs) right but it isn't there's there's more to it now your your horizons will be uh wider now yes yes all right well this episode we are talking about rashomon and the rashomon effect uh, this episode came about because both Martha and I really love Rashomon, and a couple months ago we were spitballing. It's like, oh, we should do a Rashomon episode. So we're doing a Rashomon episode. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we get into that, though, it's only fair that we share with you what is stuck in our heads this week. This is whatever piece of pop culture we want to be talking about. Um, Martha, do you want to go first or do you want to stall for time as I go first? No, I'll go first and just be honest about it. Um, <laughs> I've been, I, I was, again, just telling Pete, I uh, was kind of stuck on what to talk about this week because I have two things that have been stuck in my head and they're both things that we've talked about on the show before. And mm. I prefer to make this segment something new, but sometimes you just got to live your truth. And right now the things that are stuck in my head are Lovecraft Country, which debuted last week, and I'm so excited about the first episode was incredible and i can't wait to watch tonight's episode uh and i also started watching the great which is great Huzzah! stumble over that every time i talk about it um but pete i believe that that was your stuck in your head at one point on the show and i expressed skepticism about it because um of its connection to the favorite which is not one of my God, these names, man. It's not one of my favorite movies. Um, But I have been finding The Great to be absolutely delightful. Um, I did end up doing some reading about Catherine the Great after about the third or fourth episode because I had the thought in my head of, oh, does she die? 
during the course of this and she does not she goes on to rule russia for, for like, like 40 years a really long time <laughs> yes <laughs> spoiler alert i guess she um, she got her name the great not because of a failed coup but because of the 40 years as tsarina slash i think just actually empress of russia empress, yeah but yeah i i honestly had the thought where i was like i don't know all that much about this person and honestly i would be much less excited to continue watching this show if i knew that Elle fanning was gonna get it in the end mm-hmm. Um, but that is not the case. Uh, Nicholas Holt is really good at playing characters that I don't like. But in he like, is magisterial in this movie or in this show. He's despicable. Yes, he is. Oh my god, his whole deal with Georgina and um, her husband mm-hmm. is just. Ugh. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but yeah, between that and Lovecraft Country, I am consuming a great deal of truly excellent TV right now. Fantastic. I, I You had texted me that you had gotten into uh, The Great, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited that it actually, that it clicked for you, unlike The Favorite. Um, I have not started Lovecraft Country yet. It's high on my list, so I'm definitely looking forward to it, especially with your rave review. Without spoilers, mm-hmm. I will say that the pilot of that show knows exactly why we're all here mm. uh, and wastes no time getting down into it. <laughs> into some, like, Yogg-Shoggoth fun times? Into all of it. Yeah, sweet. There's, Excellent. There's a lot to <laughs> unpack there. I actually, I would consider uh, watching it again before uh, I dig into the second episode just because... Mm there's a lot to unpack there sure cool. uh, but what's stuck in your head i'm 90 percent sure i haven't brought this one up as a stuck in my head but if i have i apologize for talking about it again um i've never done that even once yeah right um i've been listening to an audiobook fantasy series the last i don't know probably three months now yeah probably started it in june um, Brandon Sanderson's The Stormlight Archive is the series. These are all, uh, he's got three books in it so far. Each, it's your classic, like, each book is a thousand pages long, so listening to it on audiobook is A+, uh, because 45 hours of audiobook content is something that I can consume while going on a walk or driving to the store or whatever, whereas if I had to actually sit down and read it, I would not be through even the first book, um, because I don't have time. Um... I'm, well, do you remember when I listened to The Stand and that's all I talked about for like three months? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm halfway through the third book right now, which means I still have something like 25 to 30 hours of content to go. Um, and it's it's an excellent fantasy series. Uh, Sanderson is like, you know, currently in the, the upper echelons of modern fantasy writers. Um, the narrators uh, also narrated the Wheel of Time uh, audiobook series, which I listen consumed by listening to it and i love them as narrators um so when i found out that they were reading uh, narrating this series that was also one reason i got into it um if you're looking for just a big expansive heavily detailed 45 hour per book uh (laughs) fantasy series to like just lose yourself in the world of i would recommend this very highly um cool magic system great fascinating characters none of the gender ickiness of wheel of time but sort of the same uh high epic scope um a a very uh 18th century aesthetic a little steampunky going on too um which is sort of a nice thing we're not just doing you know there's people in magic armor but there's also 
uh, clockwork contraptions and magical devices that let that like replace fires as a heater or like let you send messages over long distances, um, which is a nice sort of blending of medieval and more you know 18th 19th century stuff. Yeah, I gotta tell you my my reading of choice recently has been horror novellas. Mm. So like. 200 pages or less <laughs> so the idea of consuming 45 hours of audio content for one book is a uh, not Maybe your you number curl one curl up and die yes <laughs> <laughs> for the first book of currently there are three the fourth one is coming out in november and in theory it's a 10 book series no one has time for that <laughs> literally no one <laughs> yeah right <laughs> except you yeah yeah and that and that's because i'm listening to it uh while i'm going on walks and playing animal crossing so I really would like people to relearn the idea that fantasy can be less than 600 pages. Mm -hmm. I, fantasy can be less than 400 pages, I think, and that's okay. <laughs> I think there's places for both. Sanderson has written shorter works. I've read only one of them, and it was it was delightful. It was a the length of a normal book. Um, I think so, there's room for both, too. I just feel like the trend recently has been... I huge honking door stops yeah. and length really is something that can be a, a breaking point for me like i there's a book called the priory of the orange tree that i would love to read i've heard wonderful things about it but it's like 900 pages and mm -hmm. i just i don't have that kind of commitment in me right now yes totally part of this might also be the publishing world um nk jemison made a comment on Twitter uh, a while back saying it's like sci-fi slash fantasy publishers either want short stories or trilogies um, because that's what sells the best for them. Um, and they can, if, if you're writing a trilogy, they are now selling three books and not one book. So it might be, you know, cross pressure on the authors from the publishers. And I get that, but I also think that that's a different thing. Like a trilogy is a different entity from one series page where book. <laughs> every book is a thousand pages. Yes, yes, yes. I I am of the ninety minutes is the perfect movie length, mm -hmm. and generally four hundred pages or less is the perfect book length. Obviously, there are caveats to that. Obviously, yeah. Um, but my first impression of a book that that's long is always going to be what could you have cut you're of the you have to prove that you're worth the additional length yeah we can't yeah. all be lawrence of arabia right right um I we will... shouldn't all be lawrence right. of arabia to e be honest exactly exactly uh, i will say that this series would make an excellent hbo slash amazon prime slash prestige television series um so you know instead of rebuying lord of the rings and making I, to, I'm I'm very excited about Amazon's Lord of the Rings thing, but like HBO, if you're looking for a new Game of Thrones, check this one out. I will say, and this is something I, I don't disagree with you about getting excited for like book properties that I love, and we don't have to spend too much time on this because it is about to you know take our current conversation wildly off the track. <laughs> I'm trying to get out of the habit of thinking of books that I love in terms of how good of an adaptation it would make hmm. mm -hmm. because I don't think that things should be created just to be adapted. Sure. Fair. And this is, this is an endemic issue mostly in the comic world where people will 
write and market IPs specifically to become movies, and it is like actively damaging to the industry. I don't think it's that big of an issue in the world of prose books, but I am I am trying to kind of train myself not to think of something as having value in its adaptability. Sure. But that is not going to prevent me from being thrilled when something like Mexican Gothic gets optioned for a TV show, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I'm so excited about. <laughs> unrelated. <laughs> uh, equally unrelated, uh, but talking about comic adaptations. How about that? The Batman. Uh, Robert Pattinson's going to be a real good Batman. Yes, he I'm is. I'm not afraid to go on record as saying that. Yes, he is. I... Uh, I appreciate that they went with the bold direction of making Batman grim and dark. Uh, was not expecting that one. Okay, so here's my thing. And I I was just saying this on Twitter. I am fine with Batman being grim and dark. Because that he's, is, a, cause he's the noir guy. Place. Yeah, That is his place in the universe. My problem is when everything becomes grim and dark, then it gets boring. When you make so, Superman grim and dark, you have oh, radically you have, messed up. You have messed up, yes. So my enjoyment of the Batman trailer is also being tempered by my wild adoration of the Wonder Woman 84 trailer. Ooh, I haven't seen that one yet. It's incredible. Chris Pine wears a fanny pack with the American flag on it. (laughs) Well, all right then. Done and done. (laughs) And I think that Kristen Wiig is going to be... Is she Cheetah lady? Okay. Yes, she's Cheetah. And I think she's going to be incredible. And Wonder Woman needs a good villain. I think mm-hmm. you weren't super impressed with Ares <laughs> as a CGI monster at the end. I'm gonna say we don't have three hours to unpack yes. my feelings about Wonder Woman. Yes, uh, and and in fact, we should actually get into our topic at hand. So we're gonna take a quick break right now, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Rashomon and our other two homeworks and the Rashomon effect in general. And we are back. So we are talking about the Rashomon effect in pop culture on uh, this episode, and uh, this stems from the movie Rashomon. Uh, so rather than necessarily defining our terms of what is the Rashomon effect, we're going to start by just talking about the movie Rashomon, uh, a movie that uh, Martha and I both enjoy. Uh, it's a 1950 Kurosawa film, one of his first films, um, starring Toshiro Mifune, uh, Machiko Kyo. Masayuki Mori and uh, Takashi Shimura, and I got at least one of those names correct. I was going to say, well done, actually. Yes. Uh, Toshiro Mifune is the only one I feel confident saying. Um, it is a frame narrative beginning beginning in the ruins of the Rashomon Gate uh, as a woodcutter and a priest are sort of hanging out in a rainstorm and someone else comes up, and they tell this person what they just witnessed, which was a trial of a bandit for uh, murdering a samurai and raping the samurai's wife. Over the course of the movie, we hear the woodcutter's version of this story. He's the one who discovered the dead samurai uh, and testified at the trial. We hear the bandit's 
narrative, uh, that's Toshiro Mifune, we hear the uh, wife's narrative, and through a, a spiritual medium, we hear the samurai's narrative. Um, they're all different, they all conflict with each other, and uh, I feel like at the end there's actually a fourth narrative too, where all the stories that we've heard are, are wrong, and and maybe all the stories in the movie are wrong. Um, absolutely beautiful film, black and white, uh, feels like a silent movie at times, uh, which was a very intentional effect. Kurosawa loved silent film, and silent movies lasted in Japan longer than in the U.S., so it was sort of fresher. Um, innovative cinematography, uh, one of the first movies to shoot directly into the sun, using a lot of dappled effects, uh, and on, on location shooting in the forest to create shadows and interesting, uh, looks, um, and what, str what struck me, this is the second time I've watched this movie, what struck me was realizing it was, uh, released in 1950, so this is just five years after the war is over, and, like, the haunted far away looks of the priest and the woodcutter feel like things that they didn't have to act hard to get. Um, it feels very much of, of a, a time when a, a society is trying to figure out how to build itself back up together. Uh, Martha, what were your takes on it? Well, so one of my favorite factoids about this movie is that um, Kurosawa, like, the, the actors playing the bandit, the samurai, the wife, um, and the woodcutter, who is the guy who tells the fourth story at the end, mm -hmm. um, they each knew the story that they were telling but Kurosawa wouldn't tell anybody what he considered to be the quote-unquote true story. Oh, cool. So he wanted all of them to play it as though their version was the truth. Mm -hmm. um, the, my, the other thing that I think is super interesting about this is that every... So everyone in this movie, and like, confesses to the murder... <laughs> Like, it's weirdly, that's not the thing that people are concerned about as they tell their story. It's like making sure, like, they're happy to be pinned with the murder as long as nobody thinks badly of them. Yes, yes. Um, really interesting, especially, like, gender dynamics, which, like, makes sense for 17th or, like, 18th century Japan, um, which, like... You have to recognize it as that, otherwise the movie's not going to make any sense to a 21st century audience. Um, but yeah, you're you're right that it's like Toshiro Mifune, the bandit, is very proud that he killed this guy and wants everyone to know. Um, and that their their duel was incredibly. They crossed uh, swords 20 times. 27 times. 27 times, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, and he it was very important to him, important to him that people know that um, the wife submitted to him willingly, and then she gets up and she's like, "Nope, he super raped me." Yep. And all of these things, but yeah, so the the trope that then or the, the thing that then becomes the trope is getting the same story from multiple perspectives that differ based on who is telling it. Mm -hmm. And through those different perspectives, frequently at the end of a Rashomon-esque thing, you get the final story, which is the truth. You don't always, 
Um, I think there's an argument to be made here that you may not for for this. No, I would I would say 100% you don't for this. Kurosawa very intentionally wanted it to be ambiguous. Um and like and it it's probable that, you know, the people directly involved are all telling versions of the story that paints them in the best light, but even the woodcutter's version isn't necessarily the true one. It is just true, and like it is true as he perceives it, yeah. which is the important bit, yes. I think. Yes. Um, but no, I think that this movie visually is certainly incredibly um, effective. I actually, while I was watching it, um, took a moment to Google like Japanese horror from mm. the 1950s and 60s like there were a like couple Onibaba. of shots yeah like there were a couple of shots like of the wife's hat as it gets left behind on a bush that I found to be very kind of almost ghost like mm-hmm. um, and it just made me think huh I wonder if anybody was making ghost movies or ghost story movies in the 50s um, in Japan yeah. But um no, I think Kurosawa is definitely an aesthetic like a master of the camera. Uh his shots are all extremely purposeful. Um The this was not his first movie that I saw, but I saw it as kind of part of an exploration of his work. Sure. I feel like Rashomon and Seven Samurai are probably watched in close proximity to each other compared to something like Ron, which is a much like that's a commitment. Uh, not to say Seven Samurai also isn't long, but like Ron is not his in his famous wheelhouse for like True. neophytes. It is, it is the first one of his that I watched though, because I took a class on Shakespeare and we watched mm-hmm. it as part of um, our unit on King Lear. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. did you also watch a Throne of Blood in that class? Is that the Russian one? No, Throne of Blood is the Kurosawa Macbeth. Oh, no, the way the class was structured, we did a unit, uh, we did one history, one tragedy, and one comedy, Mm. and looked at multiple adaptations of one play from each of those groups. Mm -hmm. So for, we did King Lear, we did um, the Henry plays. The Henry, yeah. I just want to drop that term because I love that word. um, And then Taming of the Shrew. Mm. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this, this idea of the audience getting multiple, um, multiple versions of the same story through different unreliable narrators, I feel like there's, like, it's not just the Rashomon effect that you can trace back to this, but also like the idea of the unreliable narrator, um, has gotten to be extremely huge in pop culture. Like there's a bunch of stuff that sort of stems from... Yeah, and like this didn't yeah, invent the, the idea tall. of the unreliable narrator, but it definitely helped popularize it, and especially in this sort of version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, let's go on to our second homework then. Um, I assigned the second homework, which is the 2002 wuxia film Hero, directed by uh, Zhang Yimou, um, hopefully. Starring Jet Li, who is a nameless protagonist assassin who is coming before the Emperor with stories of how he has defeated um, 
a number of uh, rivals, uh, uh, assassins who have bounties on their heads. Um, each story of, of how he defeated someone brings him closer and closer to the Emperor. Uh, but eventually the Emperor is like, no, that's not how this happened. This is how it happened. Um, this movie is visually gorgeous because every every story has a different color palette. So you have the blue version and then the red version and the green version of what happened. Um, in the end, he uh, does spoiler for a 18 year old movie. That was your homework. Um, he uh, is close enough to assassinate the emperor, chooses not to gets a, gets killed himself, but then has a, a hero's uh, uh, funeral. Um, like the, the, the end stinger is like he was killed an assassin and then buried a hero. Um, it's great wuxia martial arts. It's visually beautiful. Um, and the DVD that I got from the library said it was uh, presented by Quentin Tarantino, which is hilarious. Um, because <laughs> he got Miramax to import it from China. Uh, I know that we have both seen this movie many times, uh, and in fact, um, the, uh, most recent film by this director, Shadow, was a homework assignment from last year, 2019. Fun fact about this movie, the color, the colors for each segment are not symbolic. The director was just like, I like these colors. I want it to be pretty. That's very good because I would have been upset if you had told me they were symbolic. Uh, nope. Because I had not picked wanted, up on any symbolism. No, he wanted each segment to be very clearly visually delineated delineated from the others. Right. Um, but other than that, there's no, like... Like, it's like blue doesn't mean truthfulness or something. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. It's just this character is coded this color because it's pretty. And he did not, he very purposefully did not want any um, kink hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. uh, right, because it's it's... White, green, and blue are the three versions, I think, of the... Um, when, and then when... it's red, the present? No, you're right, there is a red. Because red is in there. Red is somewhere. in there. Is White, is that maybe the sword one against um, Sky? So so there's there's only one... Like, he fights a guy with a spear, who I believe is Sky. Um, yes. And, and we only get that story one time i think um and then we get his fight against the other two assassins broken sword and flying snow yes i think three times um yeah because it's he tells us he tells the story once and then the emperor says mm, see but i think it went more like this mm -hmm. and then the emperor tells his version mm -hmm. and then we get and the then i think jetly is like you're really close but it was actually like this yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Jetly tells the story twice about his fights with a broken sword and and falling snow or flying snow. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Moon, uh, broken sword's apprentice. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I think it is a perfect modern day version of a Rashomon story because it is a, and we'll get into this with our next homework assignment. But this is a pure. We're telling a story the same we're telling the same story from multiple perspectives um sort of yeah. i mean even this one because jetly gets to tell his story twice and then one of them is a hypothetical so even this one is more of a taking the idea of the rashomon 
and mm. kind of utilizing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if you'd let me assign Hoodwinked, that would have been <laughs> the most pure interpretation of what we're talking about. But I, I do think that it is it is clearly a way of telling a story that is flexible. And I, I think that when you like distill it down to what is necessary to call something a Rashomon-affected story, it is the same story told multiple times um, through a different lens each time. Right. Telling through a different lens and telling you something new each time. Like right. you have to get something new out of each perspective because otherwise then it's a little bit like well what's the point right like what are we doing here right so in this you get the truth kind of peeled away in layers as you hear the story multiple times um like uh, assuming and i think in this movie we can assume that jet Li's final story is the final story like it is the actual truth of the story yeah uh, particularly because it ends with him choosing to sacrifice himself rather than sacrifice himself for the truth of what he kind of learns about the world and his target Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than carry out the assassination right because he he proves to the emperor that he could assassinate him but chooses not to based on their conversation correct yeah um last thing i would like to believe well i was just gonna say i would like to believe that the only thing that would cause Jet Li's character to, um, you know, consider something worth dying would be kind of an ultimate truth because I quite like him by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's great. <laughs> um, the music by Tan Dun. I completely forgot how much I love this soundtrack and I actually have it on my, like, I, I got this soundtrack back in like 2008 or whatever when I, I probably saw this movie in high school. So like 2006, um, and yeah, it's a great, great soundtrack. I will say, I think this is my second favorite of the kind of triumvirate of Wuxia movies that we all grew up on. Crouching um, Tiger, this one, what's number three? House of Flying Daggers. Oh, I love House of Flying Daggers. It's the weakest of the three. I was going to say, it's... I should watch it again. Because it's... I didn't like it as much. I mean, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is a perfect movie. I keep wanting to rewatch it and just haven't gotten around to it. Um, House of Flying Daggers is the weakest of the three. Yes. Yeah. Crouching Tiger is a perfect film. Hero is also pretty Hero close to a perfect good. film. Hero is quite good. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, don't... I feel like... Um, Sorry, keep going. I, I don't really know what I would change in Hero to make it better. Um, also, it's 99 minutes, so it's real close to that golden running time for you. So good. Uh, also, Rashomon, 90 minutes. Um, so good. 88 minutes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Handmaiden, not. A little bit longer. <laughs> 145 minutes. Yeah. Uh, seems like a pretty good segue. Uh, you all right? Jumping uh, on to the handmaid. I was going to say, for extra credit, you can watch Curse of the Golden Flower, but it's not as required as I've, the other three. I've never, I've never seen that one, or even heard of it. Maybe you actually, you should. It's pretty. I like Wuxia, so yeah, it's a little. It's more Wuxia adjacent. Hmm. Um, it's more of a. I think. Are they jumping through the air on wires with swords? I don't... Kung fu fighting? 
think so. Oh, bummer. No, it's like a Game of Thrones style political thriller mm. that has the visual strength of like Hero or House of Flying Daggers. Oh, uh, it's the same director as Hero and stars Chow Yun Fat. This sounds yeah. very up my alley. No, it's great. Um, but anyway, so I picked The Handmaiden, a 2016 movie by Chan Wook Park, who we all know um, from his other critically acclaimed work, such as Old Boy, mm-hmm. the Old Boy series, mm-hmm. uh, and also Stoker, mm-hmm. um, which I point out mostly because, like Bong Joon Ho, Chan. Uh, Chang Wook Park is just as comfortable directing in English as he is in Korean. Yes. Which I think is incredibly uh, (laughs) impressive. The future of cinema, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Well, and he had originally wanted to make The Handmaiden in English and Mm. was persuaded to make it a Korean film, which is why it's set in 1930s Korea. It's based on a book by a British author called Fingersmith. Welsh author, I think. Welsh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. I, My bad. I only know that because I uh, looked this up earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, The Handmaiden is uh, the story of um, Sukhi, a pickpocket turned uh, handmaiden, sort of. She gets, wrote, she gets drawn into a con with... Uh, man that we know as the Count who is going to go seduce the Lady Hideko uh, marry her, bounce her into an asylum and run off with her fortune uh, and Suki is recruited to help kind of pave the way for him to do so uh, the Lady Hideko is a Japanese woman who is the niece of uh, Uncle Kozuku who is a rare book dealer or rare book collector rather who is also planning to marry the Lady Hideko uh, at some point so that he can have her fortune to buy more books. Yes, it is Um, important to note that he is not a a rare book dealer because he loves his books so much. So he met the Count because the Count is making forgeries of his books to sell. So that he doesn't have to sell his original books. Yeah. Um, So this movie unfolds in three parts and is more of a Rashomon-adjacent story because each part, rather than telling the same story from three different angles, you shift perspective slightly and you get more of the truth of what is happening as the story progresses. Yes. Part one is from Suki's perspective, and it seems very straightforward until it's rather shocking ending. And then you get part two, and we, we rewind, and we see everything we just saw from uh, Lady Hideko's perspective. Um, and then part three sort of progresses the plot forward from there. Well, and part two also has some pretty strong flashback material about um, Lady Hideko's, like... Childhood. Childhood. Yeah. Um, I'm going to pause here to say that we are going to spoil this movie. And if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to watch it before listening to this because it's a really good movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. Uh, and also, it was your homework. So, like... It's only four years old, we get yeah. that, but it was your homework. Do it. Yeah, so just in case. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so first we find out at the beginning that Hideko and the Count are conning Suki uh, so that they can put Suki in the asylum in Hideko's place. At the beginning of part two. Okay. Like, like, like part one, we don't know that. Well, no, at the end of part one. Right. 
Right. So the double cross on Soki comes at the very end of part one. Right. She gets put in the asylum. Yes. And then part two, we get more about Hideko and where she is coming from. Um, and Not a great childhood. Not a great life. No. Uh, but then we get to see how she and Soki start to develop sort of a counter con that then unfolds in part three. And... Also, the two of them are super in love and then get to run away together at the end of the movie in a very incredible bait and switch that I loved a lot. <laughs> yes. yes. While Fujiwara and Kozuku, who are both pretty gross, terrible uh, men, die of mercury poisoning. Yes. <laughs> uh, and also for one of them, mercury poisoning plus torture. Yes. So this is almost in this. This feels like. You know those mat are those um, Mad Magazine spreads where you fold them. Yes. And when you fold them, the picture becomes something different. Yes. That's what this movie felt like to me. It's like as every time, every part is like a fold that you undo, and then the picture looks different until you get to the end and you can finally see the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I love that comparison. Um, I'm a sucker for stories like this. I love the idea that, like, wh wh when it's done well, often it's not. Um, but I love the no, idea... You really have to know what all of your spinning plates are yeah. for something like this to work. Yeah. Um, but, like, I love the idea of, like, we have watched something that we think we know what we're doing, and then, you know, halfway through or whatever, it's like, the rug is pulled out from under us, we don't know what's going on, let's pull back the turn back the clock and see this from another perspective and, and get some more understanding um the prestige does something like this i think only i hated that movie yeah but we've talked about this i think before um <laughs> <laughs> uh one thing that i i really appreciated about this and which sort of foreshadowed it is this movie begins with suki as like the maid going to the house and like introducing herself to um uh to hideko and the rest of the staff specifically uh the butler sasaki whom i think i caught this is the actual first wife of uh uh kozuki that he divorced because she wasn't japanese oh i missed that i i think that's what's happening there um okay. but so like it, and it feels like i don't know here's a young woman who's gonna be a handmaiden and then within eight minutes uh, uh suki is like cool so i'm actually a great pickpocket and i'm here to con sure. this uh, this lady mm -hmm. um so like from the outset the movie is almost signaling that this is going to be a twisty turny uh situation because we start assuming one thing and within eight minutes it's not that um which then sets up the other twists and turns and double crosses yeah and i i think one of the things that's interesting about this one is that I don't actually think there are any, I wouldn't call any of our narrators unreliable. Like, right. There, there is that, that first, that opening sequence, but we learn pretty quick that Suki isn't who she says she is. But while she is our narrator, I think we can say that what she presents to us is true. It's more of a lifting of the veil than a... Like, the narrators are reliable, but they don't have all the information. Correct. Yeah. So it's more like filling in the holes rather than, um, 
like having to rewrite part of the story. Right. Like like Suki has her information and we learn that when she's our POV character. Hideko has more information and we learn that when she's our POV character. And then each part kind of spins out a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. Um I had but something else one I was of, say, but... I mean, one of the things that all of these movies have in common, and I think can just be said about effective Rashomon stories in general, is that the storyteller has to have a really good handle on all of their threads. Yes. Because it is so easy for those to get lost. And yes. to have a satisfying conclusion, you really need to have all of those. Like, you need to start kind of with a lump of tangled yarn that by the end you've spun out into, like, a really neat braid. Yeah, it's a combination of, like, the the script needs to be as tight as it can possibly go. And then also the, the director needs to understand the script well enough to produce something that is that that, like, conveys that script mm-hmm. and that story. Um, this is based on a, uh, as you said, a Welsh novel set in Victorian England, and obviously this is set in Korea during the Japanese occupation. I loved that change of location, mostly because I loved the house and how we could have, like, you know, both Japanese and Western decor. Uh, like, the sets and the costumes in this were just so sumptuous and gorgeous, and the idea that you could have one scene in, like, a Victorian dining room and the very next scene in, like, a Zen tatami mat room, I'm like, yeah, more directors should make their locations weird houses that are a mix of two different architectures. I would also argue very, very strongly that this is a gothic movie. I was thinking that, too. <laughs> Literally, on scene one, as we drive up to the house oh, yeah. and we see the big spooky yeah. house, I'm like, we should have assigned this for last episode. That sequence of, yeah, driving through the woods. I was like, oh, yeah. oh. this is a gothic it's a, movie. It's a gothic horror story. <laughs> a gothic Great. thriller, yes. There's, uh, in, instead of a, an attic, there's a basement, which is uh, which causes psychological terror. Blech. Uh-huh, yep. Um, and, yeah. No, I, I think this is a perfect gothic movie. Um, and was thinking that throughout all of watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the reasons that I was kind of drawn to this topic is because the Rashomon effect shows up, like it's become kind of ubiquitous, particularly for serialized TV shows. Mm. Like like every, I, every TV show has a Rashomon episode. I can think of a whole lot of them. Um, one of my favorite, <clears throat> one of my favorites is in Leverage, where it's just called the Rashomon job, and we start the episode where, like, we know that something has gone wrong, and then each member of the team tells their story about, like, how the job went and what happened, and hmm. it's very true to the um, the source material in that each one of them tells the story in a way that makes them look like they were doing everything right and that the mess up was someone else's fault. Right, right. It's it's almost the opposite of, of Rashomon the movie where everyone is like, I did the killing, but like, I'm great. Yes, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. in a way that makes me look good, weirdly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, but dude, you also did a murder, so maybe don't. It makes sense though for like the time and, you know, like what, what, different societies place on their values and stuff well and i will say it's an interesting question that we didn't really touch on when we were talking about rasha on the movie why do you think everybody was so willing to accept blame for the murder it like like i was saying also it like vis-a-vis the 
every like the the three people's reaction to the wife it felt very much just like we need to just live in pre-meiji like like was that that the tokugawa um era japan pre-meiji era japan um <laughs> uh where there are things that matter more like there are different values placed on things so when the wife after she is raped is like well either like either kill me or kill him because i can't be known by two men or whatever um like yeah, you two it, need to fight each other to the death because i can't be like this i can't have this shame yeah um, it did feel like her assault was kind of the was more of the key feature of the story rather than the murder of her husband yeah well and yeah i mean like her assault was almost a macguffin in a way like at no point was her reaction to her assault was all about the shame of it rather than like righteous anger that she was just assaulted mm -hmm. um which again felt very much of like we're putting it in a time period with different values so similarly when Toshiro Mifune is like I killed him he was a great fighter we fought great um makes total sense because he's a braggart bandit who's been captured he knows he's gonna hang so he might as well you know pump his own story up and and go out like you know a hero as it were mm -hmm. um but yeah so why do we think this is such a compelling narrative structure I think for that, people. yeah, um, for television especially, I think it is an excellent narrative structure for a 40-minute show where we have established characters and we can play with what we know about our characters. Um, I think, like I was saying with Handmaiden, I'm really into narratives where you're told a story and then the rug is pulled out from under you and you're told that that's not the whole truth or maybe not the actual truth. Um and I think that when it's done well, it is very satisfying to, you know, it's in the same way that people like murder mysteries and like they, people not me, try to figure out who did the murder as it's going along. Um, I'm just very bad at figuring that out. So, um, uh, and, and this, this feels very similar where it's like the first time you're watching it for the first story, you think you're being told the truth. And then when that's not true then all of your expectations and understandings of the world are thrown up into the air. And it it makes you sort of pull back and reassess what's going on. Um, and then you grapple more thoroughly with the other story, the, like the other versions of the story. Um, and I think that's very entertaining and, and fulfilling for people. I will say, I think the danger is that if you don't do it well, you risk um, a feeling of audience betrayal. Yep. Because I, I think there's a fine line between that kind of like, oh, no moment. And also, oh, you mean everything you've told me is a lie. Right. Like cool. you're just jerking me around. Cool. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think that things run that danger. Um, one of the things that TV Tropes commented on for this page is that this structure gets used a lot for um, sitcoms because it's very conducive to comedy. I was wondering mm. about your take on that. I I can see that. Um, the idea of watching the same event unfold from multiple perspectives or in multiple different ways. Um, in more of a, a handmade 
uh, handmaiden version where we're not dealing with unreliable narrators we're just dealing with josh and chad and brianna's versions of the party um to make up sitcom characters names um feels like it it is good comedy because you can just reuse the same joke three times because like you know character walks into the room and then there's the joke and that's like your grounding line to to like set that like everyone is kind of telling their version of the truth but it's not all fabrication yeah, so I just had to look up to so, see... Sorry, it. I immediately... You said sitcom comedy, and I immediately went to, oh, a, a situation with a party. Um, I have no idea why that was the canonical version in my head. Oh, well, I just had to look up to see if It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia did a Rashomon episode, because... I'm sure it's called I... the one called, like, The Gang Does a Rashomon or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, the fandom title for it is The Gang Gets Rashomon. The actual title of the episode is Who Got Depregnant? Uh, um yes but because my first thought was oh i can see how for comedic value you have characters who all want to pin like who all want to make each other look bad and mm -hmm. i was like oh that's every episode of it's always <laughs> sunny in philadelphia right uh, it's always sunny does that story linearly but in one episode they did it non-linearly yes um, also, The Simpsons has one of the best Rashomon references without actually being a Rashomon episode. When in the Simpsons Go to Japan episode, um, is that the one with um, Mr. H Homer's Arkle? face is on a T-shirt? Like, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> Fishbulb. Yeah. Um, but so Marge says, "You loved like you'll." Homer, you'll love Japan. You liked Rashomon. And he says, that's not how I remember it. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when Simpsons was firing on all cylinders. Right? Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I think it's a, like... I feel like now that, like... Well, now, okay, 50, 60, 70 years since Rashomon came out... Um, I also feel like it is a, a mountain that writers want to climb because it's a, it is a challenge. You know, we were talking about mm -hmm. like when it's done well versus when it's not done well, and everyone wants their crack to do it well. So I sure. can see why TV writers are like, we can do, like, let's do a Rashomon episode. It'll be hard, but it'll be great when we stick the landing, uh, and then results may vary. Um, as long as they stick the landing, <laughs> Right, yeah. exactly. But, like, I, I totally see it as, like, it's popular because writers and directors want to try to climb that Everest and do it. Um, and it's a proven formula at this point, so if you can do it right, like, you know, you'll get success. Sure. Um, anything else we want to talk about? You have in the show notes talking about prevalence in pop culture, but that seems similar to why we think it's a phenomenon, like those two things seem very similar to each other. Um, and it's it's also if you if we're talking about like a serialized a serialized or sitcom TV show, it's a really good self-contained plot. Like it is a way to tell a certain kind of story that lends itself to almost any length that you want to do it in. Right. You can have either one alternative version or four alternative versions. Mhm. Mm um other than comedy, I feel like this is very common in crime narratives. Um, I was thinking... going to say, this is very popular, I feel like, in heist movies. Heist movies love this. Uh, Ocean's Eleven isn't a Rashomon movie, but the heist bit is a Rashomon 
like-esque scene, uh, or like a handmaiden scene where it's like we're seeing some bits and then later we, you know, we fill in the gaps. Um, but then also uh, Reservoir Dogs has a little bit of this going on, I think, uh, with the different versions of, of what went wrong. And um, uh, Usual Suspects kind of, I don't know if it has, if it's Rashomon or just a straight unreliable narrator. I guess that's really just an unreliable narrator situation. I was going to say, I don't know that you get... You don't get multiple versions. Yeah, it's not like you get the same story several times. Yeah. You just get one story the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. But it makes sense that um, Tarantino would have Rushman influences in his work, um, leaving aside the fact that he was apparently instrumental in bringing this movie to the U.S. I mean, he loves... Oh, he, he, he brought Hero to the U.S. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, he... he... No, his, like, Japanese cinema is all over his stuff. Yeah, like, see Kill Bill. Um, <laughs> yes, for example. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, like, he... I would cut off a finger if he had not seen Rashomon during his, you know, pre-filmmaking days. Um... Uh, Rashomon is based on a book, or it might actually be based on two books, uh, two short stories. I was going to say, I think it's based on two different short stories. Right. Um, so it's interesting that this, like, we think of this as such a cinematic trope, but it did come out of fiction. And um, I, I haven't read The Fingersmith, which is the book that The Handmaiden is based on. But I feel like it is a less, it is a more common cinematic trope than it is a um, literary trope. One of my favorite books is a YA novel called Codename Verity. Mm -hmm. It is a World War II book, and the main characters are a an Irish pilot and a British code breaker. Okay. They're both girls. They're both like 16, 17-year-old girls. And the um, the spy, basically, uh, she gets captured, and half of the book is the diary she was writing while she was in captivity, mm -hmm. and then half of it is what was happening with her partner, the pilot, while she, while like for through the effort to rescue her. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's an exact fit. But it is definitely a, there is a moment in the novel where everything you think you knew is different because of the perspective you've been getting it from. Sure. And now you have to kind of contend with, oh, this is like, nothing that has been told to me is a lie, exactly. It's, it's just not the whole picture. Right. Yeah. Which, which is like the handmaiden. Yes. Yeah. And I, I feel like that. That structure works very well. Like, that structure works in, in cinema, and it works in literature, because you can, like, pace it out. I don't know of any... Or, and this is obviously my blind spots here, but, like, I don't know of any literary examples of, like, a straight Rashomon of just, like, here's version one, here's version two, here's version three, etc. Like, it, it almost lends itself to the language of cinema better than, perhaps, the language of books. Yeah, with books, it feels like it might be a little bit more. 
it would be hard to keep it from being repetitive. Right. Reading and the actually, same reading the same sentence the same time is not the same as seeing the same scene the same time. Okay. So on TV tropes We don't have to go through all these. Um, <laughs> Faulkner, apparently, was a big fan of this narrative style. Hmm. Well, he was Southern Gothic. That Rashomon does seem a little gothic-y in some ways. Explain. I'm I'm going to cut that because the more I think on it, the more I'm like, I'm just, say, I'm just shoving things in here that don't actually fit. <laughs> Well, anything else we want to talk about for this? I, I feel like we sort of wrapped it up. Um, I guess the final thing is we've we, uh, we've we'd both seen Rashomon before and we've both seen Hero before, but we hadn't seen The Handmaiden before uh, it got assigned. Um, and apparently we both loved it. Yeah, it's Great. real good. Yeah. It is important to watch outside your comfort zone every once in a while. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I have not been watching a lot of foreign film recently because... It needs more focus than I. You can't play had. Animal Crossing while also reading subtitles. <laughs> Call me out, why don't you? <laughs> I'm calling myself out here. It's fine. But also true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's nice to actually like make yourself focus on a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that seems like a pretty good place to end this. Um, hope you guys enjoyed our discussion on Rashomon. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at DYDYH podcast. You can find us in any pod catcher, uh, available rate and review us. If you like the show, don't, if you didn't like the show, good job for getting through this episode. If you don't like the show, uh, good on you. Uh, as always, one of your Never homework, tell me, never tell me <laughs> right, if you don't exactly. like the show. <laughs> exactly. Um, as always, one of your homework assignments is to share the show with your friends, talk about it, uh, get them to listen to it. You can uh, email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com and you can uh, Facebook us at Facebook if you search for Did You Do Your Homework? Facebook's bad. Whatever. Don't do it. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Martha, how about yourself? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MagicalMartha. Um, I recently... Uh, to, made the decision to privatize my account so you'll have to request a follow but as long as you're not obviously a bot i will probably approve you um or you can follow me on instagram which is still an open account uh because i want people to look at my guinea pigs and tell me how cute they are mm -hmm. uh, and that also is at magical martha nice um our sister show love you updates on alternating wednesdays from this show uh, where Pete's wife Marn and I watch either a teen-focused movie or a rom-com, and then we pick it apart for your listening pleasure. Uh, last episode was... Plus one. Plus one. It was a great episode. One of the best uh, Love You episodes, I think. Oh, thank you. Is yeah. it because I didn't like the movie? <laughs> no, uh, you didn't like the movie, but you didn't like the movie in good ways, and it led to very good dialogue. Uh, and then for our next episode, we're going to be watching The Bling Ring on Netflix. <laughs> uh, that's uh, Sofia Coppola, right? Yes. Great. That that'll be great. Based on a true story. Hmm. Cool. Um. Next episode, we are very excited. We are doing a gigantic crossover episode with the podcast Catching Up David. Uh, yeah. Martha, you know more about Catching Up David than I do. Uh, they're your friends, so why don't you 
talk about the what that show is yeah, and what so we're doing. Catching, Catching Up David is a show where my friends Hallie and Kristen uh, walk their friend David through pop cultural touchstones that he missed because David apparently didn't watch TV as a child. Um, I was supposed to get or, or movies based on uh, a variety of options that were presented. Yes, or movies. Um, I was supposed to guest on their episode all about Pokemon. Uh, the timing did not work out. So instead, we're bringing the whole gang down for an episode on uh, trilogy endings. Uh, we will be watching Return of the King and Return of the Jedi and talking about how uh, these big movies um, stick their landings, as it were, mm-hmm. or don't. We'll mm-hmm, see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, David has never seen Return of the King. And so. I, it, based on based on internal documentation, it appears that he has only recently seen Return of the Jedi, like possibly through this podcast. Essentially. I don't know if they've done a Star Wars episode. Okay. Um, well, we will have to call this episode Return of the Podcast, because otherwise, what are we even doing here? It did take me saying the two titles out loud alongside each other to realize that they were both a return of. Oh, I picked that up instantly, and <laughs> I was sure excited <laughs> for it. <laughs> All right, well, that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, enjoy Love ya, and class dismissed.